Welcome to the CIM Marketing Podcast. The contents and views expressed by individuals in the CIM Marketing Podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the companies they work for. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the CIM Marketing Podcast. And every podcast, every fortnight, we have special guests. We only get special guests on this show, but this time we've got a real VIP, a super special guest in the shape of Natalie Spearing. And the reason that Natalie is a super VIP is that she is the new marketing director of CIM itself at Moore Hall. So congratulations on your appointment, Natalie. Welcome to you. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. And uh, no pressure. (laughs) No pressure at all. No pressure at all. And also on the special guest front, we have Mr. Richard Flarty, who is the creative strategy director of We Are Resource. And creative is the key word because it is his area of expertise and the focus of today's show. Richard, welcome to you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. Creativity. That's the watchword of today, Richard creativity which is something we've spoken about in the past a little bit on the podcast but we now have a creative strategy director with us to talk about it in more depth why is creativity so important when we are campaign planning and brand building well it's a big question so it's a good question to probably kick off the uh, the episode with but i think you know where i'd probably start in that take on creativity is that it is a highly subjective process, okay? People's opinions and views on creativity, what is creative changes from, from person to person. And everyone's view is ultimately right. And that's that's the beautiful thing about creativity. And I think when you look at um, activity of brands through that lens, you start to think and feel quite differently about what you see and, and what you ultimately experience. Also, the world is changing dramatically. Um, the way we buy, the way we're influenced, the way we experience brands, products and services is massively, massively different. And it's far, far more competitive. We have far more choice, uh, far more room to move, ways to purchase. So the odds are racking up for brands. The, the stakes are going up and they have to try harder and they have to ultimately become more creative, more inspirational, more daring sometimes to get those results, to capture your attention and get you to choose them over another. It's an interesting point you make about change and particularly rapid change and the rise, may I say, of uncertainty. Natalie Spearing, it is a particularly (laughs) uncertain time, is it not? When we're trying to be creative, when we're trying to develop campaign strategies that are going to be fit for the future, it strikes me that it could be quite a difficult task. How can we do it when we don't know what the future is going to look like? I think the opposite, to be honest. We're incredibly privileged, I think, in marketing and certainly in the role I do. uh, We're surrounded by innovation and new thinking. So even even though we've got a lot of sort of turmoil and, as you mentioned, sort of social and economic uncertainty, I think that because we're surrounded by new ideas, um, it often isn't that isn't the challenge. What can be challenging is creating, I suppose, more clear visibility around the topics. So I think one of the really kind of tricky areas is around things like technology, where it's evolving at such a rapid pace. So seeing what the data landscape might look like in the future or predicting the appetite for certain technology platforms, etc. 
when you don't know what exists yet. Um, that can be really tricky. But I think we're never short on topics or conversations or, or, or campaign themes and things like that. I think we're incredibly privileged uh, with that. You've got the ideas there, the, the uncertainty in many ways you're saying feeds in to the creativity. But do you think, Richard Flatsdale, that creativity is, is valued throughout the business? Do you think it gets thrown around a little bit too much and people think, well, that is the part of the colouring in department as the marketing is sometimes very uncharitably referred to? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's a valid point. I think it's a sad valid point as well, because I do feel that creativity carries an unfortunate stereotype whereby it's a piece in the jigsaw. It's it's the end process just to kind of map it all together. I think where we try to challenge clients is to think about your overall business process from a creative point of view. You know, it's not just a step in the process. You need to be innovative the whole way through um, and, and try and be as original as possible. But just to echo what Natalie was saying earlier, I think the changing landscape is actually giving you more opportunities to be creative. You know, the the uncertainty out of uncertainty sparks amazing ideas and and new boundaries are, are, are kind of crashed through. So I think it's a really, really exciting time ultimately for the industry um, as it as it changes. If you're a startup and you're trying to harness that creative uncertainty as we've captured it here, how do you make that case to the business that it has to be part and parcel, Natalie Spearing, of everything you do? And it isn't just something that goes as a stage in the process, as Richard said, the colouring in at the end. It is at the start, the middle and the end and everything after once you're out into the market itself. I think that the whole role of creativity has, has been on a, a massive journey. And um, certainly from my um, early career, um, when you'd have uh, you'd, you'd be up all night working on scamps and presentations, taking layouts down to be typeset at the end of the road, image libraries and things like that, um, having to you know scan transparencies and all that kind of thing, two weeks to wait and that kind of thing. So, but I think the process in terms of the design, the conceptualization, the test, evolve, refine. I think. The sad bit for me is that some of that process has been lost. And I think in terms of getting back to that again, it's thinking about that actually as a process that runs through the whole business. And I think if we can engage everybody in our business in that creativity process, really valuing innovation, valuing kind of creative ideas all the way through, we have then a responsibility of almost distilling those all down into something that then resonates and engages and ultimately motivates people into making that purchasing decision. But I think getting everybody on that bus um, and getting everybody involved from the beginning makes for a much better and much stronger idea. I think what's really important is when brands start out to not feel the pressure of creativity. It's a heavy crown to wear and, you know, creatives across the world feel that pressure whereby They'll come in with a brief and there you go, land me an award-winning piece of creative or go and sell this product or, or go and sell the, this service. For me, what's really, really important is that a new startup brand stays true to itself and stays true to its own promise. At the end of the day, a brand is a promise and we're looking for an element of consistency to build reputation um, in, the, in their behaviour. So it's not a case of needing to literally sit around a table every morning and come up with a crazy new idea. It's about plotting a course and, and staying true to that and, and the interpretation of what being creative means to that specific brand itself. 
It's interesting, isn't it, Natalie, that if you ask a creative team to come up with an idea and be creative, that's almost militates against their delivering a great idea. Uh, and you've, yeah. got to make, you've got to make a culture of relaxed creativity throughout your business, throughout your department, throughout everything you do. I couldn't agree with you more. I think the expectation, and funny enough, sitting in a planning session yesterday um, with, with my team, who are all highly creative in their own ways, and expecting people to, you know, be able to, you know, free form ideas and kind of throw things out and be all kind of, you know, that, that the definition of what we kind of traditionally would always call creative is just it's just not realistic. And I think people kind of think um, differently, people behave differently and people kind of need different mechanisms to be able to access their creativity. So I think being all over that in terms of, you know, looking at that as a round landscape rather than just a really linear one gets the best ideas as well. So, you know, there will be the quiet person in the room who has loads of ideas, but perhaps doesn't want to bring them for fear of feeling a bit embarrassed. Or there's the ones that kind of shout louder, but perhaps haven't got the substance to, to back up the ideas. So it's kind of keeping that kind of whole dialogue really open um, and keeping and having lots of different mechanisms in the business to capture it as well. Um, and again, you know, looking across your business, there's there's so much creativity that's going on in pockets of, of your business. And again, being able to access that at different times and, and leverage it, I think is really key. That's fascinating, isn't it, Richard? That Natalie's trying to create a framework of openness so those ideas can naturally emerge from all parts of the business. They're there, but her framework is to try and make sure that they emerge and can contribute. How good are agencies and departments at doing that, do you think? Well, it's mixed results, to be honest. It's a really good um, framework to work with. And, you know, I've worked in many different agencies over the last 20 or so years. And Quite often, the best ideas have come from the people in the room that you least expect it from or who aren't classically titled or labelled creatives. And I think if you can create an environment and a workplace, a brainstorm that is encouraging and that is is, is a safe space, if, if you like, for creative ideas to, to come forward and, and to be fostered, then you have a much better opportunity to come up with strong ideas. I think rather than, like Natu was putting it earlier, putting it on one person, one individual, right, give me a start to end creative campaign that's going to do exactly what we need. It's got to be a much more collaborative process. So it's not the sort of stereotypical Don Drapers, one guy or one person has to deliver everything from start to finish, but to try and find these ideas that come through more democratically through the business. Yeah, and, and exactly. And that's why you have some of those um, sometimes laughed at techniques within brainstorms. You know, the, the old classic blue sky thinking or whatsoever, because you need to kind of break down the barriers, because when we walk into a creative environment and we're forced to come up with ideas, the walls come down in terms of can't do that, won't do that. They'll never go for that. We tried that in 1974 and they didn't like it. So you need that element of free thinking. And sometimes it's the maybe the youngest or the most inexperienced person in that room that's got the freedom of mind to come up with that creative idea. Maybe that tiny little crumb that will start us all on that journey to get to something that's ultimately creatively successful. Do you think that approach leads to greater authenticity, Natalie Spearing? You know, with this democratic approach, this the sort of ideas emerging from all parts of the business, does it come across to consumers as more authentic and then more likely to get them to adopt the brands and advocate for them? Uh, I, I think massively so. I think where it comes from different places, I think you do genuinely get the authenticity. 
Um, I also think it you have to consider what it's feeding into as well. So I think at the, on, a, on a much bigger level, if we aren't looking outward into other departments and other areas within our business and, and externally when we're coming up with ideas, fundamentally it's not feeding the business objective so if, if you know we've got these overarching goals that we're all feeding into if we're doing things in isolation often we're not seeing that bigger picture and and so essentially it's you know the success is always limited in terms of our kind of that very open collaborative approach I think that is really the only way you're ever going to get the best for everybody as opposed to just what is the best for the marketing team or the best for the sales team or whatever else so I'm, I'm a massive supporter of that and to, in terms of kind of frameworks and, and looking at um, objectives and, and how that all kind of cascades through an organisation I think it's really really critical that you harness that really early on when you get people into your teams. It's not just about involving everybody in the business Richard Flatterly it's about people involving people quote-unquote outside the business also known as the public also known perhaps as customers and that can help enhance advocacy from outside as well as in absolutely absolutely i mean you touched on it earlier advocacy it's absolutely critical these days and it's a term that's starting to get thrown around a lot more often uh, but it is very very important in this day and age we spoke earlier about choice and about the the wide range choice we have now as consumers you know, we don't need to leave the sofa to do our weekly shop. We're going to Amazon and we're hit with thousands and thousands of, of different products. So, so choice is a really big factor. And ultimately, what brands are trying to do is enable and charge armies of, of customers out there to do a lot of the hard work for them. Because we know that through um, reviewing within our peer groups, families and friends, we're far more likely to take a trusted decision. So if brands can engage their audience to actually go out there and be ambassadors for them based on the engagement that they've had, the trust, the loyalty, that whole piece, then it becomes very, very powerful. And it also becomes a far more economically efficient way of, of communicating. How good do you think your marketing departments and agencies are getting that brand advocacy, making it work for them, Natalie? I think it's a real mixed bag, if I'm honest. I think we've got a wider societal issue with trust. And um, let's face it, we haven't had a, a good run of it, have we, recently with kind of governments and uh, media. Obviously, there's uh, some big trust issues um, there. Um, but I think we can definitely do more. I think as uh, obviously as business, we can do more um as uh, obviously in my capacity sort of from an an institute ultimately um we can do more i see it as a actually a massive responsibility in fact i think purely from a commercial sense we we kind of know that if we take the time to build that trust based on real genuine and authentic purpose we will increase our customer engagement and that will lead to sales we we know that um, you know, it, the, the brands that really, really think about their purpose first, they, they really think about their customer, they think about the customer needs, they think about the, um, well, I think we know sort of how many, it must be about 58% or something along those lines will, will kind of advocate for brands based on their beliefs and values. So it's huge, you know, we will go about telling our friends and family if we really believe those brands and businesses are really true to what they say they are. 
and the problem obviously happens is when people don't live to those values yeah. um, and, they're, and they're not true to them um so i think in in so many ways that authenticity that you know that, that needs to come across and and why they exist what their purpose is what their values are at every touch point of, of the brand and putting the needs of the customer at the heart of that experience makes that kind of whole piece come together. It is huge. It's huge and potentially powerful, Richard. But it's more difficult, isn't it, than the olden times? You know, because of there is, it is by its nature chaotic, involving potentially infinite audience. Whereas in, in the old days, when we produced a marketing campaign, we put it out there, there was no social media, no internet in, into which we could get feedback. There was a perception of it being more controlled. Yeah, it is. It is it's a changing world and it is, it is far harder. Uh, but being harder also brings potentially greater benefits. I think what brands have got to do going forward is they've got to have an understanding and appreciation that they're not going to be faultless, okay? And that's really difficult because what we've seen is the rise of review sites, okay? So Trustpilot, TripAdvisor, et cetera. But we're using these sites and these mechanisms, if you like, in a different way. I mean, how many people out there, I'm, I'm always guilty of this, you book a holiday, hotel or whatsoever, and then you go on to TripAdvisor after you've made that booking and you're reading the reviews and you're thinking, oh my, what have I done? Because there might be 10, 20, 30, 40 positive reviews, but it only takes one negative review for you to suddenly have a bit of a wobble. And that's very much the, the world we live in. And that kind of reinforces the importance of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, recommendations and, and pushing that advocacy model a, 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 as much as possible. But we're in a world whereby we can quickly check up on a product, a service, a brand, a review, and, and it's far easier to find possibly the negative um, associations with that brand. Because like Natalie was mentioning earlier, it is a double-edged sword. You know, for all the positive benefits you can get from the advocacy, it's a very, very fragile world. And we can see now in the cancel culture, as, as it's called, backed up by also what Natalie was saying in terms of a lack of trust from a society point of view, um, there are some real dangers to be had out there. Right, Natalie, how do you how do you manage that? How do you encourage the advocacy <laughs> and counter or combat the attacks, the, the one bad review that can topple potentially a thousand good ones? Oh, I think a really good example is is, is looking at how um, employer brand has really leveraged this. And I think that's been a really, um, really strong movement over the last sort of few years where lots of businesses have started to use um, advocacy, you know, within their businesses. And obviously, again, to Richard's point around the reviews, you know, we've we've all kind of been there with the, you know, going on and having a look at Glassdoor and seeing how kind of companies are performing and things like that. What I think that's massively driven, and certainly in organisations I've either consulted in or worked in, um, is a, a massive change of behaviour, which is which is fantastic. So people are listening, they're looking. That wasn't there before. So so some of that kind of um, behavior continued. It wasn't called out. Um, you know, so for, for all those positive reasons, I think it's been it's been fantastic. I think in, in terms of how you deal with the negative, I think, again, to, going back to Richard's point, it, you can't be unrealistic and think that everything is always going to work in your favor and that every decision you make as a business or a brand is going to be a good one. I think it's how you respond to it that's critical. I think that it's the timing of how you respond to it. So you don't leave it drifting 
um, and you're honest that you're actually taking that feedback and how you're feeding that back into your organisation to make a positive change. And I think that's what ultimately people want to see. Um, they don't want, want to see sort of brands kind of ignoring customer sentiment and kind of coming, you know, or coming back and saying they're doing something about it. And then the same problem occurs three, six months later to that customer or they see a pattern of events happening. I think the whole review process and having access to that kind of direct customer feedback loop is absolutely essential and it's made businesses better. Yeah. Um, I really do think it's made businesses better and it's and it keeps businesses on their toes and it keeps businesses focused on the customer. And I think that can only ever be a good thing. The standards have gone up. You can't just have a good product with a good price anymore. You've got to do more. But I think what's also gone up is that uh, consumers generally will forgive you. OK, they will forgive you for making mistakes. Um, but like Natalie said there, you, you've got to respond to that. You've got to act. You've got to be genuine. You've got to be transparent and you've got to see and, and show evidence of, of change that you got it wrong. And there's actually far, far more plaudits to be gotten by doing that. Where that's difficult for larger brands is because they're big battleships. They're slower to turn. It's harder. They've got reputation. They've got maybe some internal departmental struggles or they've got certain stances that they need to take. Younger brands new startups or whatsoever can be dynamic they can be fleet of foot and they can be a bit challenging so there's an opportunity there for growth if you're a larger brand and you don't have that uh, as you say uh, agility that fleet of foot as you put it that the smaller brands do you as a marketer in that company are realistic and you know that you will always get some negative to go with the positive but not everybody in the business is as accommodating as that. Something marketers face is that they know that there's a bit of rough to go with the smooth, and this is how they counter it. They may not be in the fastest moving organization, but you're getting a lot of flack from the top to crush all negativity as if it's something that can be wiped out. How as a marketer do you approach that internally in the business to make the case that actually having zero negativity is simply not feasible? This is all about plotting a course and, and staying true to that course. I think when you start to think of creativity as a as a loose chemistry, if you like, what we're talking about here is having some more kind of rigid frameworks and, and approaches that as marketers you can basically put in place for people that are theoretically non-marketers and say, listen, these are the milestones. These are the KPIs, if you like, that we're going to need to achieve. There is going to be a bit of a wobble. We might take some hits from here, from left, from, from right. But ultimately, we're on the right course. The, the bravery comes by staying on that course and realizing that it's not going to be built overnight, that you might have to change perceptions, opinions. It might take time. But what we've seen and what we know is that brand reputation can only be built ultimately through consistency. Changing tact, opinion, viewpoint every fortnight or whatsoever is going to do nothing but destabilize customer uh, confidence. What they're looking for is for you to plot a path and stick true to that. So they know what they're getting and they know how you're behaving and they know ultimately what their relationship with you is going to be based upon. That's great advice, isn't it, Natalie, that you create these milestones, these touch points at which you can assess how we're doing at those points. But between those points, there has to be a lot of room for manoeuvre. I think as long as that is the approach your your business or your brand is taking, when we kind of approach certain campaigns or initiatives at CIM, you know, our, our kind of whole ethos is test and learn. The rigid approaches that potentially came before 
where we didn't do that, I think then you get to the end of a kind of a campaign activity and it's like, oh, well, it failed or 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 it did really well. And there's a very kind of polarizing effect then that happens in in a business. And I think then it can take you off really in 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 a one direction and and really preclude any of the kind of positives that could have come out of that other direction. So I think that that kind of test and learn approach is really, really important. And I think we kind of need to distill much more of that, I think, within kind of marketing as a as an industry that that we're not frightened to make those mistakes. And I think that has to be reflected in the way that our customers then see it. And I think if the customers see that we are trying, but we are learning and we're trying to to do the best thing for people as a genuine outcome, I think the forgiveness does come when you do make the mistakes. And I think that always comes from a very kind of genuine and honest place. Then people do see that. But that's a really interesting point, isn't it, it, Richard, that actually there is does tend to be a polarizing assessment so it's either a tick green tick or red cross at the end of each campaign in reality there's shades of gray between that some parts of a campaign would have been effective and some less effective instead of being granular our masters our judges as marketers tend to polarize their view how can we overcome that so we can learn to take the good from different campaigns and reject the less effective it's a good challenge and ultimately it comes to education and awareness i mean i've been in countless meetings where i've presented campaign strategies or concepts to clients to different brands across lots of different sectors and they've gone can you guarantee it's going to work and you have to be honest and say no i can't guarantee but everything's pointing towards it will work or you've done a campaign and you've had the wash up and they've gone "Mm, but did it really work and you've got some metrics you maybe haven't got them all because they didn't want to invest in the full set of metrics post-research, the qual, the quant or whatsoever. So you start to work within that kind of dark art that you're talking about, the grey areas where, well, do you know what? I think your brand's been built. We've been consistent. We've engaged the audience. You know, we've had some good responses there. So sometimes I think as marketeers and as creatives, you're almost having to self-justify and post-rationalise why you did the campaign in, in the first place. So ultimately, there's got to be a greater appreciation. There's got to be a wider spectrum if you like of boxes to tick because it can't just be a a pass or fail because we as consumers don't work that way so brands certainly shouldn't look at their marketing and their communications in that way fiendishly difficult this stuff yes it's something we're all going to learn as marketers we're going to succeed in our job so what sort of resources can you recommend for them to do further reading to help them with all this stuff so, yeah, well, I mean, where, where do you start to look? I mean, we're, we're blessed, aren't we, with the, the Internet, which we could look at on, on the one lens and think, well, what a great source of information. But where do you ultimately start? I always like to try and take a slightly different take on things. And rather than look for brand successes, I quite actually like reading about brand failures. And um, what were those mistakes that were made? What are those decisions that were taken or weren't taken? or those judgments that, that were made that was, were, were wrong. So I'm always interested in, to look at sometimes the negative side of things and, and, and look at it from that point of view. Natalie, are there any resources that you can advise people to access to help them with this stuff? Well, I'd, I'd be pretty remiss, wouldn't I, if I didn't uh, talk about CIM and, um, and obviously the amazing amount of content that we have. Um, in all seriousness, I mean, there is so much around this subject and, and around uh, kind of campaign strategy planning, all that kind of piece, um, but also around brand trust and advocacy. And there's so many different areas that it touches. And I think in particular, 
you know, something very close to sort of CIM's heart over, over certainly over the last couple of years has been around um, sort of sustainability. So there's a there's a big piece there around the sort of uh, greenwashing agenda and and brand trust. Um, so you know we have some really great assets on on the uh, content hub um, that can help people to start to piece some of that together um, and look at it from a I suppose you know from a brand perspective but also from a customer perspective. Um, I'd also take a look at the um, Edelman do a, a great kind of trust barometer and they've been doing that for, for some time and it does give you quite a lot of um, interesting insights into how, how that's changed and evolved over time. So again, in terms of how people, that how their kind of mood and sentiment has changed around trust over, over the years. So again, that gives you quite a, quite a decent picture. I think fundamentally though, as marketers, we can't, we just can't afford to get this wrong. If I can just come in just with one final point on that, I think to balance the, the, the theory, which is, you know, I hold in very, very high regard, you know, if you can match that with some kind of practical uh, advice and experience, and what we've learned, you know, even just from this conversation in terms of advocacy is that your consumers want to be engaged. OK, they want to give you their opinions. I think where brands potentially fail these days is they don't engage their audience. That sounds like a real one one, but they're happy to be asked in terms of how they're feeling, what they want from you, what they like, what they don't like. And they will reward you on that basis. They'll be really honest. They'll be really transparent and they will feel a closer connection. I think where consumers sometimes these day and age feel um, kind of deconnected from brands is when they feel that brands are, are kind of beyond them almost in terms of um, the, they, they can't engage, they, they can't connect to them. They've got no resemblance there whatsoever and that they're almost too proud to engage their audience because based on their, their brand reputation or, or how good they were five, ten years ago. So I think there's been some real good areas of growth from brands that have reached out to their audience. And I'm not just talking about qualitative research and, and listening groups, but have literally just gone out there and said, listen, what do you want from us? What what kind of measures are you holding us to? Natalie, that's an interesting point, isn't it? The sort of halcyon days, if you like, of control and remoteness from your consumers are very much a, a negative. There's been an evolution that actually this slightly more chaotic world where we're closer to our consumer, where we will have to attract some negativity and some flack as part and parcel of it, is actually a more mature form of marketing than the old style. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of leads my kind of mind really onto the way that we collect data. Um, and it's kind of, a, a, you know, along similar lines. But I think it's with with the massive changes in regulation around data and obviously the evolution of data. I think if we started to behave perhaps as organisations like zero party data environments, you know, I know this is all kind of a big hot topic at the moment, but if we were looking at it from a, you know, we're looking at data as the intentional and proactive data that we want to get from customers, it changes the kind of whole dynamic of how we interact with our customers from day one. So I think if, if there was a little kind of bit more consideration to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer and think about what they would like to share with you and why they would like to share it with you, as brands and as, as organisations, we might create more reasons for consumers to want to share that level of data. Personally, I think that's going to be a really big shift over the next few years. And if, if we start to think like that as organisations now, 
when we don't have that level of regulation in place, that we'll start to adapt the nature of how we form that relationship with our customers. So embrace openness, involve your customers and make creativity part and parcel of every part of your package, not a stage in the process. Quick fire question to finish us off. Quick fire answers, please, guys. Richard Flatterly, if you wanted to give marketers one tip for an uncertain but exciting 2023, what would it be? Be brave. Okay, be brave. It's going to be difficult to make such a horrific mistake with creativity that there's no way back. Um, so be brave, be ambitious, but also be measured in the way you're going to do it. Okay, so try and have a plan. And Natalie Spearing, what's your hot tip? I would say probably just to pick up on my last point around data trust. I think if we start to really think that way and start to really um, dig into how customers really want to be treated and what they what they want access to, I think our behaviour with our customers would would um, certainly increase um, and certainly improve. Use data to tap into the mind of customers and let them lead us into the right place. Indeed. Natalie Spearing. Richard Flarty, thank you very much indeed for your time and your insights on what has been a fantastic podcast today. Hope you'll come back and join us very soon. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the CIM Marketing Podcast on your platform of choice. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. CIM Marketing Podcast. <laughs>